0: Well, we've been going, as you know, through the Gospel of John and working our way line by line through the things that are here. John, of course, is wanting to prove the deity of Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus is the God-man, the Savior of the world, and what he does is he brings one witness after the next. He's giving testimonies from many different angles of who Jesus Christ is. And along the way, we get to spend so much time with Jesus and learn so much from the lips of Jesus himself. And it is to me a good balance to be at this time in the Gospel of John. I read the words of Tennyson today, who wrote in some of his poetry years ago these words. He said, Oh, for a man to arise in me, that the man I am might cease to be. Some very profound words, really. And I would say that if you are today dissatisfied with yourself, dissatisfied with who that person is inside, and yet you don't know Jesus Christ, then you need to really pay attention to this narrative before us, because there is much here for you about a new life that you can have in Jesus Christ. How a man could arise in you that the man you are might cease to be. How you can become a new person. It's all here. I'd like to read over the narrative in verse 1 down to verse 10 in chapter 3. And then we'll get into it. Here we find there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's interesting there, isn't it? Verse 3, he answered. He wasn't asking a question. But Jesus effectively cut him off in midstream and just cut right to the issue, right to the need of his heart. He answered, really, the need of his heart. There was no question. He was just getting started. So Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? This is quite an amazing passage, especially as you get to know this guy Nicodemus. You get to sort of go beyond the understanding of just some Pharisee straying out of the crowd coming to Jesus. Really begin to scrutinize this guy and see who he is. This becomes an amazing passage. I've divided it down into three sections. First of all, we see here the belief of Nicodemus. Secondly, the blindness of Nicodemus. And thirdly, the bewilderment of Nicodemus. These are the things that are here in front of us. And Jesus ministers to him on all these levels. Let's begin with the belief of Nicodemus in verses 1 and 2 here. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So here comes Nicodemus to Jesus. And he comes to him, first of all, the first thing we encounter is that he comes to him as a Pharisee. Which is remarkable in and of itself. Because the Pharisees, as you know, were a salvation by works group. That's what they were into. They were into salvation by works. Because of the nature of this group and what they believed, they were bitterly opposed to Jesus Christ throughout all of His ministry. They are a main force that is in the crowd when the crowd is shouting, Crucify Him, and He is sent to His death. These people opposed Him from the beginning all the way down to the end. And they certainly opposed His message of grace because they were a salvation by works group. So being a member of this group, it is amazing that he came at all to Jesus, if you think about it. And right off the top here, one message that I see is that there is no class of people unreachable by Jesus Christ. And that is so important to understand. That some people can come right out of the groups that are most adamant against Christ. God gets a hold of them by His Spirit. He draws them unto Himself. And the next thing you know, they become prime examples of the saving grace of God. And so here comes this man as a Pharisee to show us that nothing is impossible to the grace of God. Not only did he come as a Pharisee, though, he came as a ruler. This is not just any Pharisee. This man is a ruler. It says here he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, what does that mean? Well, that is the equivalent of saying that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. I don't know if you know anything about the Sanhedrin, but they were a group of 70 members... They were effectively the Supreme Court in Israel, and even though the Romans had dominated that area of the country and the world with their rule, they still had a lot of religious jurisdiction. So that basically the Sanhedrin had jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. And here is a man who is one of this group of 70. He has tremendous power. It also speaks volumes of how devoted he was to the whole religious trend of the day. One of the duties of the Sanhedrin was, interestingly enough, to examine and deal with anyone suspected of being a false prophet. So you kind of get the flow, the bent of this group... And then you begin to realize that here is a man who's a Pharisee, number one. He's a ruler of the Jewish people, number two, being a part of this elite, powerful group. He then was probably a household word among the Jewish people in that area. Probably everybody knew who Nicodemus was. And every detail here is important. So he comes as a Pharisee. He comes as a ruler to Jesus. But he also comes as a sincere seeker, what we could call a sincere seeker, so that we read in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now there's three different words he could have used in the original that refer to this rabbi type status in life. Each of the three has a different emphasis in terms of respect. He chose the middle one. So he's showing Jesus' respect, but he's not showing him all the respect that he possibly could, and that is tied into his belief about Jesus Christ. You see, he came as a sincere seeker, and he comes very cautious, and he came by night because of his limited belief. He came by night, and he calls him teacher. So here already we understand there's something different in this man's mind than there was in the mind of Peter or Andrew when they came to the Lord this man sees him as just teacher and he comes by night as opposed to these other guys who left everything publicly and were not ashamed to be publicly identified whether it be a wedding at Cana or elsewhere the cleansing of the temple hey we belong to this guy we're we're disciples of this man we'll admit it publicly to anybody anywhere anytime ask me I'll tell you but here this man comes by night there's a couple of things here. One is that he comes and he's impressed by Jesus because we read of his miracles. And here is a man even who comes out of the pack. Remember in last, the last chapter, chapter 2, it said that many of the people believed on him because of the miracles that he did, but he did not commit himself to them because they were just bandwagon type people, a lot of action, a lot of activity. Here's a miracle worker, potential powerful military religious leader. So he didn't commit himself to them, but one then comes out of that group who's got more in his heart than the rest of them. And then we see Jesus now begin to commit himself to this individual because his heart is different, and yet his belief is still limited. Now he sees Jesus as a teacher. You have to realize that it had been 400 years since they had heard from God. You go through the Old Testament, all of this activity, prophet after prophet booming the voice of God to the people, all of a sudden dead silence for 400 years, no prophets from God. Nicodemus sees Jesus preaching, he sees the miracles that follow his teaching and he begins to realize this man is a teacher, that's obvious, and he must be from God because of these powerful miracles, so he's a high level teacher at the least, but what I think about him beyond that, I'm not sure. And so he comes to him by night because of his limited belief. Now much has been made of this it's derogatory to Nicodemus that he came by night. If you understand his position as a Pharisee, number one, as a ruler of the people, a member of the Sanhedrin, those who were sent to sniff out any potential false prophets, you can understand why he might be inclined to come to Jesus by night. Especially because he doesn't believe wholeheartedly in Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. All of these things we've heard echoed from the mouths of the disciples who have already come. And so he comes because of his position as a Pharisee and a ruler by night. He's cautious. His faith is limited. Another thing is that I'm convinced he wanted a private discussion. Now, maybe he was afraid of what happens if the Sanhedrin hears that I'm down here. That's perfectly natural. This is a man in transition. But I'm convinced he did want a private talk with Jesus. Of course he would, to help him over the bridge of his limited belief. So, again, coming by night, he would then miss the great crowds and multitudes of the daytime so that Jesus would be physically approachable and mentally approachable. He's resting under an olive tree by the campfire you know, eating a piece of fish, whatever. And Nicodemus sort of comes alongside and says, So, say, teacher, got a minute to talk? And Jesus stops and looks at him, swallows the fish, has a bite of pita bread. And he says, yeah. And then, so they, you can see them walking away from the other guys to talk a little bit. So he wants to be alone with Jesus. And you cannot fault him for that. You can say, oh, he was a coward. He came by night. He should have been this. He should have been that. He came by night because of his limited belief. Let me just inch you a little farther. He came by night, but he did come. Do you see that? That is the most important thing of all. Listen, come however you need to come, but come to Christ. That's the point. That is the most important thing in all of life. It isn't when he came that is the issue. It is the fact that he came. Have you come? The fact that he did come, in spite of the fact it was at night is why Jesus, responds so marvelously to him. See, way back in the book of Isaiah, there is an obscure verse, I'll read it to you, it's in chapter 42 and verse 3, and it's a prophecy of what the Messiah would be like, the tenderness, the love, the patience, the insight of the Messiah, and it says concerning him, Isaiah 42, 3, "...a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench." Matthew reaches across the sands of time and he pulls that right out of almost obscurity in Isaiah and he lifts it to the forefront of our thinking and he just writes it word for word in Matthew twelve twenty, Speaking of Jesus, validating the fact that yes, indeed, he was like that. And here comes this man, timid, cautious, coming by night. And he's feeble, yes, in his attempt and in his belief, but Jesus is patient with him. Jesus meets him where he's at, meets him on his level and fulfills these wonderful scriptures. And in the process, I think he leaves us a wonderful example. We need to realize, here's a slow, feeble effort to get to Jesus, but it is an effort to get to Jesus, and we need to be the same way Jesus was when we have people that are slow in coming to Christ and be patient and loving and gracious and meet them where they are. So he came by night because of his limited belief. He came by night, but he did come. And let me show you something else. He did start out cautiously in the beginning but he certainly did finish well you begin to compare him to some of the action in the Gospels and he becomes absolutely nothing short of astonishing here is this guy creeps in by night so he has this encounter with Jesus time goes by I'm sure from there so you have Nicodemus no doubt from this point working his way slowly into full light cautious plotting along working things through after this encounter with Jesus at the same time period, you have another man by the name of Judas Iscariot. He starts out with a grand public proclamation of being a follower of Christ. He becomes part of the intimate circle of twelve. But as time works its way through in the ministry of Jesus Christ, by the time you get down to the end of his ministry, Judas Iscariot, who started out with this great big up publicly, is found to be betraying Jesus, goes out and hangs himself... All the other disciples forsake Jesus temporarily, and they flee away. And out of the crowd, in the midst of all of this, denial comes Nicodemus. And the Bible tells us that Nicodemus stepped out of the pack. You see, what happened was this. All the disciples said, will never deny you, not a chance. Peter said, and they might. Lord, take a good look at me. Here is a man who would never deny you, no matter what. And within hours, denying Christ, not once, twice, but three times. In the middle of all this, the Bible tells us that all the disciples forsook Jesus and they all took off. Now he goes to the cross effectively alone with a few women there. Isn't that amazing? The men took off, the women stayed. There are women at the cross and the only man that we know of at the cross that was a disciple was John because Jesus gave his mother to John. You find that when he was dead, Joseph of Arimathea came in boldness to Pilate, though he was probably afraid of his life, from the Jews, begged the body of Jesus, took it off the cross, and took it away to bury it, and out from the pack, none other than Nicodemus. And the Bible tells us in John 19.39, why don't you just turn there, we'll look at it together, of the amazing boldness of this man. John 19.39 Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus from the cross to bury it and Nicodemus who at first came to Jesus by night I think John puts that in there for a reason I want you to remember who this is folks this is the man who was so cautious and timid with limited belief all of a sudden he also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes of a hundred pounds Speaking of the fact that he was, yes, of course, a wealthy man, but also speaking of who he believed Jesus Christ to be at that point, at a time when all the others had forsaken and fled. Here comes Nicodemus. Judas, who had started so powerfully it seemed, has now denied him and killed himself. And Nicodemus is standing strong. And he is an amazing example of the power and the grace of God to change the life of an individual. So he starts out feeble, but he ends strong. And don't ever forget that. Because this is the kind of thing that God loves to do. He loves to take the most weakest, feeblest, fearful individuals... And the next thing you know, here comes Nicodemus with an armload, a hundred pounds of stuff. I mean, it's obvious. He might as well shout to everybody, "Hey, everybody, I'm going to bury Jesus the Messiah who you killed, but we have faith that He is everything He said. And Jesus loves to be able to do that. It's almost as if God has a great sense of humor. I remember when I first came to Christ and I was walking, literally, walking onto the campus out at Cypress College from the parking lot to the campus and just as we stepped onto the cement off the asphalt, I turned to my friend I was now like three days old as a Christian and I said, you know, this is so wonderful, I've come to know Jesus, but let's just get one thing straight right here, right now. I am never going to become one of these fanatics who stands up in front of a bunch of people and talks about Jesus in some kind of a bold way. Get that out of your mind. I'm going about this privately and personally. This is very intensely personal to me. God kind of has a sense of humor, I think, as well as a great sense of grace To change you, to do above and beyond what you could ever imagine that he could do. And even to put it within your heart to want to do things you could care less to do. And then to even turn that into a burning, obsessive passion in your life where all that matters in your whole life is him and people coming to know him. So here's this man, cautious in his approach, but the important thing is that he did come to Jesus. There's another thing I think I see here, and that is that I believe he was driven by discontent. That's not blatantly outward in the passage, but that's what I'm convinced of. That he was driven by discontent, and I'll tell you why I think that. Because he was surrounded by man-made religion. And man-made religion is always empty. Now, their religion was a hybrid of God-given Word from Heaven, the Old Testament Scriptures, as well as all this tradition from man. So what they did is they took things from God, the Word of God, and they blended it with the tradition of man. And by the time they mingled it together, it became man-made tradition and man-made religion with a lot of truth in it from God, but so much from man that it was no longer what God had given. So he comes out of that pharisaical environment where it's all man-made. It's all works righteousness, which is a burden that no man can really bear. I remember when a couple of years ago, Tony and I went up to Pocatello, Idaho, and we shared with the brethren up there. I was able to meet people at that church, that strong Mormon country. And I was able to meet people at that church who have come to the church from listening to our radio broadcast and come out of Mormonism. And I remember two girls standing in front of me, weeping, just weeping, saying, You don't know how good it is to come to this church and hear Lou Phelps sit up there on his chair, his stool, and teach the Word of God, teach the grace of God, and to know that it's all a gift and it's all by grace, it's all been done for us at the cross, And that we don't have to earn our way into heaven. Oh, the grace of God is so good. Those are people basking in what true religion is all about. A relationship with Jesus Christ. But you see, man-made religion gives you a burden you cannot bear. Nicodemus is just full of that stuff. In fact, he is a leader amidst those who teach it. So he's been teaching this stuff for years. All of a sudden he hears a new voice passing through, a peasant rabbi. At first glance, a nobody until he hears of a miracle, water turned to wine. Ah, maybe that was just a fluke. Maybe they pulled it off with some gag. Until he sees him go into the temple alone with a scourge of cords and literally empties out the temple with none other than the power of God with him. And then sees this trail of miracles following along behind him. And all of a sudden, this new voice is something very unique and very powerful. And he's not teaching the things that Nicodemus has been teaching. And so this discontent begins to breed in his heart. And I think that one of the most powerful things in life that God uses is a deep-seated discontent with your life when things are not right with you and God. So here comes Nicodemus, I'm convinced, driven by discontent with all of this empty man-made religion, salvation by works, no answer for his sin and guilt, and in the final sense, totally empty and totally frustrated. And I just, my heart breaks for people that sit in churches today and are fed effectively the same thing. Do you realize how much hybrid quasi-Christianity is out there? I don't know if you know it. Depends on where you've come from. Maybe God's blessed you all the way along. But we have people that come to this church that went to 20, 30 churches before they ever came here Not looking for something fantastic, because they're not going to find that with me. But looking for the Bible. Looking for the Bible. And had to go through all these hoops, just to get to a building with people in it, and the Bible open, where they bring their Bible to church, where they expect to use their Bible. Many of you came from that direction. You know the frustration of this man-made quasi Christianity that's a hybrid of whatever, a little Bible and a lot of man and this kind of thing, and it's empty, absolutely empty. Maybe you're here for the first time tonight, or maybe you've been brought by a friend, and you're right in the middle of all this. And you've begun to ask yourself, you know, I've been going through this religious thing for so long, raised in the church, grown up in the church, could quote scripture, but is this all there is? Maybe you're asking the question of how much your religion is really working for you in the stress of your work week. Maybe you've been asking the question, if your religion is going to help you cope with the stress of dying, and maybe even dying an agonizing death, or dealing with death in someone else's life that you love. Maybe you're coming to realize that your religion, man-made, quasi-hybrid, positive as it is, is not answering the needs of your life. And then in the end, without the Bible, without conviction preached from the pulpit, from the Bible, you have found you don't have any peace and you don't have any hope. Listen, if you're in that place today, you're right where Nicodemus was when he came to Jesus. He was deeply discontented with all of that man-made religion. And the voice of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, had drawn him to a place of hope. So he comes, yes, cautious, but driven by discontent. And I think another thing that was moving this man along in the direction he was in coming to Jesus was that he was conscious that the years were rolling by. Conscious that life isn't going to go on here on this earth forever. But the years were rolling by. I believe this was there. Because if you look at verse 4, John 3, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? I think we're getting some insight into Nicodemus further here. Found out now he's powerful. He's a Pharisee. He's religious. He's at the top of the heap probably absolutely rich because of the nature of those positions in those days, but he is also old. He's an elderly man. How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? There's no question. Think about it. To get to the top of the heap, to be where he was, to jump through all those hoops, to become a success, to be a noted famous teacher in Israel, the odds are he was very elderly at this time and then even says it out of his own mouth what that says to me is that this man had the statistical card stacked absolutely against him and that he's coming he's sensing the years are rolling by you realize of course all the statistics show that most people come to Christ when they're very young somewhere around 18, 19 somewhere in there you know walk the aisle, weep a little bit when you're 12 years old don't walk with God Go through your struggles, adolescent nightmare, teenage, insanity, drugs, alcohol, immorality, frustration, failure. And the next thing you know, around 1920, a lot of people come to Christ. Many, many people and walk with them for the rest of their life. And then on in those early years, most of the conversions happen there. And every generation, every decade after that, the odds are higher and higher against you that you will never come to Christ. Until you get into the elderly age and so few people, the percentages are so few of those that will ever come to Christ. And the hardest ones to reach of all are the ones who've been steeped in religion. The ones who say, I've been to church all my life. Now you're not talking to a non-church person here. You're looking at a church member. Those people are so hard to reach, they're almost impossible to reach. So this man is statistically, he's got the card stacked against him. But something has caused him to realize, time's passing by. I'm not happy. I'm successful, but I'm not happy. I know the scriptures. I'm a Pharisee. My job is to know the scriptures. But I'm getting older and I'm not sure. Have you noticed how time seems to pick up speed as the years roll by? I remember my first few months in kindergarten. (laughs) Remember how slow the time went by? And it was just such a new experience and everything seemed to just last forever. Then the first grade was similar. Then the second grade seemed to go a little bit faster. Third grade, you're kind of an old pro at this thing now. You're just moving along in life. Fourth grade, hey, it's really happening. And fifth grade, man, you've got it all wired. You even know how to do a little math. And you're really becoming something, but somehow it's going a little bit faster. Sixth grade seems to go by the fastest of all. Suddenly you're catapulted into the seventh grade, into a whole new life. Peer pressure caves in like a monster from somewhere else. And all of a sudden, everything changes. You go from one class to the next. Now you've got this responsibility of all these classes, you know. And suddenly you feel like you're overwhelmed with more responsibility than your parents. They can't really relate to all the responsibility of all these classes. And it becomes so difficult. And the next thing you know, boom, seventh grade is over. You're launched into the eighth. By the time you get your bearings, ninth grade is over. Gone into high school and now it really gets heavy. And the next thing you know, you're standing there with this cap and gown and little thing swinging, little tassel, and they're playing. I was in band; I played it. And you've realized, where did it all go? Where did it all go? That isn't anything, is it? Compared to getting out of there, getting established, getting married, getting few responsibilities in life, and the next thing you know, you got to get up, go to work, you got to come home, you work with the children, their homework, and you're trying to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and all of this, and now, boom, the years are zipping by like the roar of a car going by when you're in a cheap motel. You know, just boom, 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 boom. start wondering, you know, I'm not as spry as I used to be, and that 50-yard dash that I used to do so quickly, man, it's just hard to get out to take the trash out and back now. (laughs) Nicodemus was getting older. How can a man be born when he's old? You know, I'm kind of old, Jesus, and I believe he was sitting back in the crowd, listening to Jesus and watching Jesus and realizing, I better do something about my eternal destiny. I'm not sure this man-made thing is going to get me there. I need to close in on Jesus. I see that his disciples have something I don't have. I've got to get alone with him. I've got to talk to him. I've got to ask him these key questions. And how amazed he must have been when he had no doubt rehearsed his speech for days. You know, I mean, this is no ordinary rabbi. He's coming to talk to rehearsed the speech for days. He walks up. He says, no, no, rabbi. We know that you are a teacher come from God. He's just getting ready to really roll. And Jesus just cuts him off. Interrupts. Listen, you've got to be born again. What? What about the speech? What about your soul? You know? It's an amazing night. But here's the grace of God. One of the first people Jesus ever saved was an elderly man. With a card stacked against him. Full of religion. The hardest people to reach because they think they've got it already. And Jesus wonderfully and powerfully saved him. So Nicodemus and his belief coming to Jesus. Let's move on now and go to the second main thought in this passage. And that is the blindness of Nicodemus. His blindness to the things that Jesus wanted to give to him. In verse 3, we read of the need for the new birth that was expressed to him by Jesus. And Jesus basically says, you must be born again to understand my kingdom. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, notice, see the kingdom of God. Then he says in verse 5, he can't enter. So he's making two different emphasis here. I think this is the reason why People can't understand you when you try to explain the richness of a walk with God to them. You know, you're sitting there and the Lord's changed your life and you've been experiencing this peace and this joy that is unlike anything you ever expected. You've come to the end of your search. The day you came to Christ, there was something inside of you that said, The search is over. You're at the end of the line here. You can rest from now on. No more searching. No more finding the answer. And you're trying to communicate this to people. And you know, God has been speaking to me lately, putting these impressions on my heart, and I followed a few of them, and it was incredible what he did as a result. I stepped out, and you're trying to describe all this. And they're going, hold on, let me get some others around here. Here is a man who hears God. Let's just let me get some people that you can also tell. And you're going, fine, I'll witness to all of them. And they all get together, and so you hear from God. God talks to you, yes. And what has He done in your life? And they cannot understand. And you're thinking, man, I feel so anointed. This is my greatest witness yet. And they're just shaking their head. And they're walking away going, another nut. Tell us what Jesus says to you tomorrow, you know, when you get to work again. We'd love to hear it. And then the next day, well, preacher, I remember I first got born again. I was working construction in Long Beach. I didn't know anything. 19 years old. Come to work, hard hat on. Work outfit on, going to dig some ditches, run my jackhammer. Inevitably, work a little while, coffee break. Catering truck comes. I'm up there sweating, put my jackhammer aside. And I'm the new guy. Well, preacher, come on over, have a cup of coffee and preach to us. You know, and I'm going, preacher, what is a preacher thing, you know? <laughs> and they think you're a nut. They don't understand. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, there is no way... You can see what I'm all about unless you're completely born again. You cannot see anything in my kingdom. And then he says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, he says, I say assuredly to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What a thing to say to a man like that. Think of it. I mean, This guy's educated. He works with people. He counsels people. He teaches people. He makes big decisions on false teachers. He makes big decisions with all of the religious stuff that goes on among the nation. And here is Jesus saying to him, you don't stand a chance. Not a chance. He's saying, you may be born a child of Abraham. That's not enough. You become a leader among religious people. That is not enough either. You have a great knowledge of religious truths and of the scriptures. That is not enough either. And it is not enough to be meticulous in all of your religious duties. You may not skip a beat in all of this, but it's not enough. You don't have a hope. There's not a hope for you at all if you continue this way. Unless you are born again, you are as far from the kingdom of heaven as you could possibly be. Can you imagine how that hit his ears? I mean, this guy is devout. He's incredible. He's at the top. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, I look at this, and I see a very religious man, and I see between the lines a certain kind of person, the kind of person who wonders if there are different types of Christians, the kind of person who's religious, who wonders if maybe there aren't born-againers and then the rest of us Christians, the kind of person who says, Well, you know, I try to be a Christian, and I'm doing the best I can. I'm not one of those born-againers, though. Well, you have to realize what Jesus is saying here, is that there aren't two kinds of Christians. There aren't born-againers and the rest of us that are into formal, denominational, whatever, Christianity. No. Catholic Christianity... Lutheran Christianity, Presbyterian Christianity, put any label you want on it, good people among all those denominations, but there are those among those denominations and groups who want to make a difference, and they want to say to you, look, it's fine if you want to be a fanatic and be a born-againer, but I am a Christian trying to do the best I can the basis they have for their belief that they're a Christian is everything that Nicodemus was. They're religious, they read the scriptures sometimes, they're meticulous in their duties. But Jesus is saying, that is simply not enough, Nicodemus. It's just not enough. So if you're one of those people, Jesus has a very strong word for you. He says to Nicodemus, most assuredly, now this is something that comes up only in John's Gospel. It's a kind of a thing that Jesus only uses... Your Bible might say, verily, verily, truly, truly, most assuredly. But Jesus only uses this phrase when he is absolutely as serious as he can possibly be with the most important issues of the kingdom of God. And he says to Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying this, it's not possible to take a man or a woman... Train them in religious doctrines and duties and make them a Christian. It's just not possible. He is saying this. It is impossible to become a Christian without the new birth. That's what he's saying. He is saying right here, there is no alternative. He's saying if you want your sin forgiven. He's saying if you want to know you're going to go to heaven when you die, you must be born again. Now somebody's thinking, well, but I grew up in a Christian home. Jesus says to you, you must be born again. J.C. Ryle made a good point about those that have grown up in a Christian home. He said, grace does not run in families. It needs something more than good examples and good advice to make us children of God. And that's right. Charles Spurgeon built on that. He said, every generation needs regeneration. Echoing the words of Jesus. Do not marvel, he says in verse 7. I said to you, you must be born again. So listen very closely. If you are one of those who've thought all these years, there's born-againers, and then there's the rest of us Christians, they're just doing the best we can. No, that is not biblical. Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world, said you must be born again. He is saying there's only one kind of Christian that's a born-again Christian. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian, and you're not going to heaven, no matter how religious you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how meticulous you are in your religious duties, you are shut out. No hope for the kingdom of God unless you're born again. There is no other way. So, we could say this. An individual very realistically could be ignorant of many things in the bible and be saved right i mean many of you haven't read the whole bible and you're saved you could be ignorant of many things in the bible and still be saved but to be ignorant of the matters that are handled in this passage is to be on the broad road that leads to destruction to be unsaved to be on a destiny in a collision course with hell and not heaven This is one of the most important passages in all the Bible because it deals with this very issue of the people that want to say there are two kinds of Christianity when there really isn't, there's only one. And just think of in your mind how many of those people are out there. It is absolutely mind-boggling to think of it and how many you have met and how God weeps over that. And so the need for the new birth was expressed to Nicodemus. And then the need for the new birth was explained to him. And Jesus uses these interesting words. If you look at verse 4 again, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now we need to deal with this water and Spirit thing. There's been a lot of discussion about it. And for the sake of keeping things straight, there are those who relate this water directly to baptism. Directly to baptism, but you have to realize no one was ever born into the kingdom of God from literal contact with water. You don't find it. Nowhere does the scripture speak of the new birth as a result of water. In fact, when the Bible speaks of baptism, rather than identifying it with new birth, it identifies it with death. So that Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So baptism speaks of death. And then when you go through the full thing of water baptism, it becomes a picture of the burial of the old man, and then the new man rises out of the water. It's not a picture of the second birth, it is a picture of... Of the death to the old man, and then you raise in newness of life with Christ. It's all symbolic of that, but it is a symbol. It is a symbol, an outward symbol of an inward reality. What the Bible does is it relates water to the Word of God. So he can't be speaking of this literally. You say, "Well, no, he's talking about the water of the womb." No, he's not. the The word in the Greek is not the word that they would use in that place, in that time, for the water of the womb when a mother has a baby in her stomach. It's a different word entirely. So that's out. And that's the way I looked at it for years. Oh, you've got to be born of your mother's womb, the water of the womb, water breaks, the baby comes, sorry. That's not the word in the original language, so that explanation is out. Water here relates to the Word of God. You trace it through John's writings and you find that it is a symbol for the Word of God. For example, if you go to the woman at the well, just go to the next chapter, John chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give shall never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In chapter 15, I'll read it to you. Verse 3, he said, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So what is the water? Proverbs twenty-five twenty-five says, As cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to your word? The water is the good news of the gospel. It's the word of God preached. Revelation 22:17 says, When the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who is at thirst come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, it's connected, the water with the word. In Ephesians 5:25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word so to be born of the water you hear the word of god it's symbolic of the word of god you hear it preached you hear it ministered to it's quickened into your heart by the spirit you're born of the water the preaching of the word and the spirit so born of the water then he says born of the spirit John 3, 6, he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So you must be born of the water and the spirit. Let's talk about that which is born of the flesh here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. What he's saying is effectively what you find in Genesis 1, where everything reproduces after its own kind. So God is showing very clearly there in Genesis that... Each kind can only reproduce its kind. One kind doesn't turn into another, cannot reproduce another kind. And so what then you see Adam fall into sin. He is spiritually polluted so that his offspring, the offspring of Adam and Eve from that point, they are spiritually polluted. It's the equivalent to having a clear stream, crystal clear, unpolluted stream. And then along come some people, and they decide to build a big factory upstream. And they build their factory, and then they start pumping out garbage out of the factory, and they begin to pollute the stream. And everything from that point in the stream downward is now polluted, so that only dirty water rolls down that hill. Well, when Adam fell into sin, he became polluted with sin. Eve was polluted so that the only kind of offspring they could give was fallen flesh, polluted sinful flesh. Men born estranged from God, every single one of them sealed into the realm of the flesh. That which is of the flesh is flesh and that's all it can be. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's saying, Nicodemus, everything you've done is in the flesh. It's related to the realm of the flesh. Nicodemus, you can baptize flesh and you've got baptized flesh. Nicodemus, you can make your flesh religious and you've got religious flesh. Nicodemus... Your flesh is going to remain flesh until the very end and it's just always going to be flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and it will always be flesh. No matter how you educate it, dress it up, train it, it will in the end default to being what it is flesh. came across an interesting story administered to me about all this. It's an old story about two court courtiers and they worked for a certain king and they wearied their king, their monarch, with these incessant arguments as to whether or not a person had to be born a gentleman or whether he could become a gentleman by training and discipline and ingrained habit. The king finally dismissed them from court and ordered them to go out into the world and seek conclusive proof for their claims. A year to the date, they would have to each come back and present their proofs, and he would then settle the argument once and for all. The year passed. The courtier who said that one could become a gentleman had traveled far. He was in a distant land, and he had not found his proof. But one day, he was sitting gloomily in a wayside inn, and he sat up in astonishment. He had ordered a cup of chocolate. And to his astonishment and amazement, he saw that it was being brought to him by the innkeeper's cat. Now, this was no ordinary cat. This cat had been trained to stand up on its hind legs. And it was dressed in a little, nice, tiny, sharp, tight uniform. And it had learned to balance the tray on its forepaws. The courtier watched, spellbound as the creature, contrary to nature, walked slowly toward him, balancing the tray with his cup of chocolate on it. He was amazed. He saw the implications at once. If that cat could be trained to do a thing like that, why couldn't a man be drilled into becoming a gentleman? It proved his point. He paid a vast sum and secured the astonishing feline and headed for home with great delight. Well, news of the cat leaked out, and the courtier's rival was plunged into despair. He, too, had traveled far, but was returning home empty-handed. Remember, he's the one that believed he had to be born a gentleman to be one. He was sure he had lost. Then, just a day or two before the scheduled appearance in court, he saw something in a shop window that brought a smile to his lips. He made a purchase, but kept it well hidden from view. On the day of the trial, the first courtier presented the cat to the king as proof that a person could be so trained that he could overcome all natural handicaps and become the most accomplished of civil persons, a gentleman. As the king sat on his throne, the remarkable cat, attired in miniature court dress, walked carefully on its hind legs, made its way slowly down the red carpet, carrying a tray of chocolate to the king. The court broke into applause. Everyone was so excited. Everyone looked with admiration on that cat and with pity at the other courtier, the one who said that you must be born a gentleman to be one. Well, the other man was calm and relaxed because he was ready. With a bow to the king and a show of respect, he brought out a little box. And he bent over and he opened the box in which he had his proof. The courtier then released half a dozen white mice And instantly the cat forgot his training and education, its discipline, its ingrained habit, and its natural instincts surfaced, and in a flash-off it went scampering after the mice this direction and that. The discussion was settled once and for all. The cat returned later, purring loudly. After several hours, needless to say, his court attire was rather disheveled, and he was acting like a typical cat. You see, Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. You can train it, you can baptize it, you can school it, you can educate it, you can make it successful and positive and everything else. And you can feed it with Bible, and you can make it meticulous in religious duties, but that which is born of flesh is flesh. Jesus says to this religious man who was so schooled and so trained and so slick, He says, you must be born again, or you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, how could a man be born a second time? And he says effectively, look, Nicodemus, it wouldn't matter if you could. Because you would still be right where you are today. You must be born again, or you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he said, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And this is the point, only the Spirit of God can give birth to the Spirit within man. Only the Spirit of God can do this. And so to this teacher, this religious man, this son of the chosen man Abraham... He says, what you need can only come by the Spirit of God. You don't need more logic. You need a gift from God. You need to be born again. Well, we're out of time. We have another point left. I didn't do this on purpose. We must stop here. Because the question comes up, what is this born again thing? You're telling me if I'm not born again, I'm not a Christian. I'm telling you that. That is exactly what I'm saying, because that is exactly what Jesus is saying. And I'm just reading the red words on my page in my Bible. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. You need to be born again today, or you won't go to heaven. You say, well, where does the Bible say that? All over the place. The next time when we come back, we're going to go and look at some of those places. So that when we're through this famous, well-trodden path in John... You will know why this is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Because this issue is the issue to get you to heaven. So we'll have to stop here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. God, it is so amazing to see this religious, powerful, wealthy, stately, elderly man facing Jesus here utterly hopeless in that condition unless he is born again. And yet, Lord, it's so encouraging to see him step forth in boldness at the end of your ministry to publicly proclaim his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And it's something that you did, Lord. Something happened to him as he was in the crowd listening to your teaching and you did it. Lord, we... Pray for those in the crowd today listening to your words again that need to have that same experience. They need to have that same touch from your Holy Spirit. Quicken them this day, Lord, and draw them unto yourself to this born-again experience. Let them see, Lord, that the truth of the Scriptures is far more important than any tradition or hybrid of man's religion they've heard to this point. If they try to push the truth away, Lord, when they leave this place or leave this message... Push it right back. Lord, follow them with this truth until the day that they get on their knees and confess Christ and live to see the day when you open their mouth publicly and they can boldly stand with you as their Lord and Savior. Work this great work of salvation in every heart we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.